Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. I think I, before, as I messily spread my notes out here, um, before the book came out here, I was actually over in Sweden promoting it, and it has a different title in Swedish, because uh, if you directly translate such good work, it would be like, you have labored well, um, and it doesn't work very well. So when I talked to the Swedish people, and they learned about the title. Uh, in English, they said this is very smart because no matter what reviewers say about it, they'll have to say the title of the book, and then you can say the New York Times calls it good work. And that's, that's what I was going for. And you guys can sit up here if you want. There's some chairs right in the front for the handsome couple in the matching Patagonia jackets. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, tonight I'm going to read the uh, first chapter of my novel, which is not very long. Um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about writing it. And, sorry, put this over here. and then um, we'll have a little question and answer, or more of a comment than a question and answer, if you prefer. But, and then I'll sign some books for anyone who wants them. And if you're thinking about buying a book, and uh, I would highly recommend buying it from our lovely hosts here at Skylight, who were kind enough to hold this event. So, novel's called Such Good Work. This is the first chapter, and it takes place in Wilmington, North Carolina, in 2013. All right. My students turned in drawings of animals with extraordinary lifespans. I learned that there were species of tube worm that lived for up to 170 years. Arctic whales more than 200 years old clams with a life expectancy of 400, sponges that had been alive for more than a millennium, a kind of jellyfish, the immortal jellyfish, that after reaching sexual maturity could revert to infancy again and again, maybe forever. Really? I said, holding up Lucy's drawing. Lucy nodded proudly. She was a sophomore psych major. Her jellyfish wore a cape. A dialogue bubble above its head stated, I am a mortal and a jellyfish. I hung Lucy's picture on the whiteboard next to Ravi's Arctic whale, which had a, a horn and a side profile smile. Ricky's tube worm was a bright red plume with the caption, the tube worm is a vagina-like creature that can grow to be up to six feet tall. It is a deep sea invertebrate whose only predators are accidental ones, mainly large mammals trying to have sex with it. <laughs> Kayla's drawing was not a drawing, but rather a full space of a full page of double-spaced text explaining why there shouldn't be drawing assignments in a college creative writing class. Drawing animals is not creative writing any more than pottery is accounting. She sat in the front row and glared at me. She had the posture of someone who spent her childhood balancing books on her head. She was almost certainly the treasurer of a sorority. I hung her essay next to all the animal pictures. My department chair, Norman, invited me to his office. Norman was a squirrely man who always appeared to be bracing for a punch. He was from a leafy college town in the northeast and looked out of place in Wilmington, a waterfront tourist strip that happened to have a university. 
He had hired me the previous summer after a string of maternity and rehab leaves of absence had left the department in need of temporary faculty who could be trusted to stay childless and sober. I wasn't sure why, out of the pack of graduating MFA teaching assistants, he had picked me, but maybe one of my professors had gotten the wrong idea about me and put in a good word. Look, Jonas, I'm not trying to be the administrator here, Norman said, but a student complained. The student had felt uncomfortable with last week's homework assignment, attend a stranger's funeral. Frankly, Norman said, I don't know if I can blame her. The student was Kayla. Norman waited for me to say something, but my mind was too foggy to find a good explanation. No more funerals, I agreed. Back in my office, I typed up a more traditional assignment. Write a story. <laughs> my mind was always foggy lately. At age 27, it was my first semester sober, and without four doses of oxycodone on a day, a couple tramadol in the mornings, a few methadone now and then, and a weekend bump of heroin to take the edge off, I'd been having trouble finding my words. Sometimes when I was standing in front of the class and one of the kids asked a good question, my brain would start firing off ideas and it was like I was alive again. I'd explain the relationship between dialogue and narration and fiction, do an impromptu performance of how a scene from a popular movie would sound if a narrator were commenting on each piece of dialogue. And feeling my energy rising with the sound of their laughter, I'd circle back to answer the original question by describing the moment in their assigned reading when, 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 but the words would scurry into the fog again, and I'd be left umming and uhing like an idiot. Just gonna hydrate real quick. Monday morning, the students slumped through the door. They spent almost Monday. Uh, they spent almost every Monday since they were five years old in a room like this. It took its toll, so often being somewhere other than where you wanted to be. When I used to get high, places were interchangeable. Everywhere was the best place ever, and then the worst. But now place mattered very much. There were few places I liked more than this classroom with the cheap blinds over the windows, the long fluorescent light tubes overhead, and the students who, even though I often told them what to do, didn't seem to hate me. Except for Kayla. Her dislike troubled me. I stood at the front of the class. I was wearing jeans and a navy cardigan that had been a gift for my ex. I had been growing my hair long since a methadone nightmare the year before had given me a fear of balding. The hair now reached down past my ears. It was strong and brown and shiny and probably the best thing I had going for me. I held up a stack of students' stories. This was concerning. I paused. You killed all your protagonists. The students laughed nervously. Kayla maintained eye contact from her spot in the front row. I'll admit that this may be my fault. I probably shouldn't have sent you to the funeral. That's on me. I was trying something new. But here's the thing. Life is long and usually ends in death. Stories are short and usually don't. Characters can have problems without having cancer, and suicide doesn't always have to be the solution. I looked out at the students hoping to see a reaction, which was a stupid thing to do, since even when the students were in the middle of life-changing moments, when they realized that all experience was subjective or that they didn't have to major in business administration, they almost never visibly reacted. But today, seeing no reaction, I panicked. I took a sip of water and gathered myself. Please stop killing your characters. It's bumming me out. <laughs> After class, I asked Kayla to stay behind for a second. I was nervous. I knew from student evaluations that one-on-one -on -one interaction was not my strong suit. 
In class, Professor Anderson was hilarious and super sarcastic, but in office hours, he was random. How's the semester treating you, Kayla? I said, making casual eye contact. It's busy. She clutched her binder to her chest. Are you enjoying your other classes? I am. Uh, you're an econ major, right? Psychology. Psychology, the econ of the liberal arts. <laughs> what? I get the feeling that you don't like this class. She mulled the question over. I don't not like it. I had planned on liking it. You have an A, you know, she sighed. I feel like you're not teaching us what you should be teaching us. What do you think I should be teaching you? I don't know. Well, what do you want to learn? She opened her mouth but stopped. It would help if you told me, I said. Maybe what you want to learn is what the other students want to learn too. You're the teacher, she finally said. That evening, I went to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Technically, I should have been going to Narcotics Anonymous, but I found that the average age at AA was much higher, which meant that the shares had better stories and that I was less likely to meet people who looked and sounded like me. After the meeting, I saw Spanish Richard waiting for me in the parking lot. He was a middle-aged 300-pound recovering alcoholic who wore Hawaiian shirts and cargo shorts and cried every time he shared. My man, he said, shaking my hand and pulling me into a half hug. You out on the streets again? I am not. I just haven't been keeping up on meetings. I didn't tell him that I had never been out on the streets. I had used drugs in my apartment. I have to get better about that. How long have you been clean now? About two months. I refuse to say 70 days. So you're not an expert yet. You are correct. Have you started the steps? I'm getting there. I had no intention of doing the steps. AA was like religion. You could take the parts that worked for you and leave the rest. My man, at some point you have to ask yourself, how much more am I willing to lose? I nodded. You already lost a girlfriend. How about your job? How about your home? How about your car? I used to find it strange how the men at these meetings put cars on the same level as wives, jobs, and homes on the list of things they lost to drugs and alcohol. Not until I heard a 12-stepper describing his two hours on the bus each day as reflecting time did it occur to me how much more a car could mean to someone who's at the mercy of public transit and a parole officer. In the parking lot, Richard told me the story of his fall again, and I found again that hearing about all night drinking, lying, cheating, and car crashing, told with the same emphasis and pauses as the last five times, wasn't boring at all. Just the opposite. It was comforting, like hearing a favorite bedtime story. Spanish Richard said that he now got more real joy from making his bed every morning than he ever did from alcohol. He talked about God as if God were a hotline I could just call. He also mentioned a hotline I could just call. <laughs> it's, it's 24 hours, he said. Then he put his hand on my shoulder. You can handle it. How do you know? He shrugged. Because I can handle it. Three weeks after our first meeting, I got another summons from the department chair. Norman didn't want to micromanage my process, but he was concerned. Maybe you want to use some coarse syllabi or exercises from the department file. He cleared his throat. Or maybe you would feel more comfortable handing over the course to someone else. You know, I would love to use some coarse syllabi and exercises from the department file. I've been struggling for direction, and I think that could be just what I need. How can I access them? I'll send you the link. 
I could feel that there was a but coming, so I preempted it. I realized that I haven't been on top of my game lately. There have just been a lot of changes. I paused. It's hard to lose someone you care about. I didn't think it would affect my work so much, but it has. Norman nodded sympathetically. He didn't ask whom I had lost, which was lucky. The implication of sadness from losing a loved one sounded better than sadness from losing the version of yourself who got to be high all the time. <laughs> Back in my office, still employed, I ate a multivitamin and wished it were oxycodone. The next day, I biked to work, inspiring two separate pickup truck drivers to yell their guess at my sexual orientation. In my office, I found a story slid under the door. It was from Kayla, a revision. The first draft of her story had been about a young Marine whose plane was shot down on his way home from Afghanistan to marry his sweetheart. In this revised version, the Marine's plane still crashed into the sea, but this time he was resuscitated by an immortal jellyfish. The jellyfish gave up his immortality to save the Marine, but there was a catch. The Marine could never again leave the ocean. So the Marine swam across the Atlantic to the coast of North Carolina, where he watched his lost love walking along the beach alone, day after day. Every evening as she passed, he longed to reach out and pull her into the water, but he loved her too much, so he just floated in the waves, pining. One day he saw a man walking by her side, holding her hand. That night, the Marine swam away without anger or bitterness, only sadness that this part of his life had ended. On the last day of the semester, I ordered pizzas for the class. Ricky provided a vegan pizza, which was simply a loaf of bread. <laughs> Lucy brought homemade cookies so perfect they looked photoshopped. We ate and laughed and played YouTube videos on the projector. I gave a short speech that ended with, now get out of here before I get emotional. A line that I had planned the night before, but which, as I said it in front of the class, inspired actual welling in my throat. On their way out, the students dropped their final assignments on my desk. Ravi shook my hand and thanked me for the class. Ricky waited for the others to leave, then looked me in the eyes and told me that this was the least boring class she'd had in a long time. She closed the door after leaving. I was alone. I looked at the empty desks. I slammed a pizza box over my knee. I hurled it across the room. I picked up another box and raised it over my knee. I can take care of that, Kayla said, suddenly appearing in the doorway. Oh, I didn't see you there. I put the box down on the desk and made casual eye contact. How is the end of the semester treating you? Kayla took the box from my desk, opened it, threw away the garlic crumbed wax paper and the little plastic tripod, folded in the sides and flattened the cardboard. She packed up the other boxes the same way, then tucked the flattened boxes under her arm. I'll just run these out to the recycling bins, she said. I stood there waiting for her to return and wondering what parting words I should leave her with. It was non-sexual affection, but I didn't want to give her the wrong idea. I just wanted her to know that she shouldn't take my failure as indicative of what life would offer. I waited. The clock read five past. Students from the next class queued up in the hall. One peeked in to see if I'd left yet. I glanced out the window, but of course she wasn't coming back. At home, I opened my laptop and tried to write a story about immortal jellyfish and the longness of life. I had barely written a word since quitting drugs, aside from a journal in which, for the past 116 days, I had recorded thoughts like, the days are really long and I miss drugs. 
Given that I had ridden every day since high school, it was strange to be without it. Earlier, I had written an unpublishable novel, a long book that managed to say very little. Today, I wanted to write something small that felt big. But already in the first paragraph, I found myself unable to describe the way a jellyfish swam. That was why my book had been bad. It took me so long to describe anything. By the time I got to the end of an analogy, the reader had forgotten what I was describing in the first place. I wanted a half-sentence description of a jellyfish, fleet and deft and hinting at metaphoric meaning, the kind of thing that people would underline when they read it. But it took me five lines to describe the inflating, deflating plastic bagness of the jellyfish. I opened a browser window and typed jellyfish swimming into the search bar. I clicked on a video from a nature program in which a British voice narrated the jellyfish's swimming perfectly. The voice sp spoke with such calculated eloquence that no word was wasted. I shut the computer. I biked out to the beach. It was a 12-mile ride, but the late spring heat had not yet turned vindictive. And even if it had, I wouldn't have felt it. My wallet was stuffed with $300 in 20s, money with which I was going to buy pills from Kit when he got off work at the Applebee's he assistant managed. It was early evening by the time I reached the coast, the sun hanging low in the sky, and the only people still out were crew-cut Marines from Camp Lejeune drinking bottled beer with their young wives. They'd be sent to Afghanistan or back to Afghanistan shortly. If the soldiers on the beach survived the war, they might show up in my classroom one day, straight-backed and polite and quietly desperate to make up for lost time. And what could I teach them? I laid my bike on the sand, rolled up my jeans, and waded shin-deep into the surf. The water that pooled around my ankles had been part of the ocean before I was born and would be part of the same ocean after I was dead. I wasn't sure what to do with that information. Professor Anderson? I turned and saw Kayla, walking hand in hand with a broad-shouldered and crew-cut man. He had brown forearms and a white chest that looked like parts from two separate action figures. <laughs> Kayla wore a bathing suit top and jean shorts that looked like she was trying to reconcile what she was seeing in front of her with what she knew. I couldn't tell whether her surprise came from catching me waiting in the ocean by myself or from seeing me outside the classroom. It's a little tradition of mine. I tried it out of the water. After I turn in final grades, I go for a dip. Uh, you got an A. She smiled. Professor Anderson is my fiance, Hank. Nice to meet you, sir, Hank said. I braced for an alpha male handshake, but Han Hank's grip was gentle. Up close, I could see that he had the face of a boy. It dawned on me that I was the adult in the situation. Have you two made any plans for after graduation? I said. I have another year left, Kayla said, but I'm going to be a flight attendant. She's going to see the world, Hank said. How exciting. Any particular part of the world? All of it, hopefully, Kayla said. And when's the wedding? Next month, right before I ship out. Hank looked over at Kayla with his big young eyes. I can hardly wait. Kayla ran her fingers over her ring, which looked more like an earring than an engagement ring, a skinny band with a tiny diamond. I took the $300 from my wallet, folded the 15 bills over once, and held them out to Hank. Happy wedding. Hank froze. Please, I insist. You make a lovely couple. Kayla took the money from my hand. Thank you, Professor Anderson. Hank stared at his feet. It's her first wedding present, babe, Kayla said, handing him the bills. Hank lit up as if he had just realized she was going to marry him. He put the twenties in the pockets of his shorts, in the pocket of his shorts, and shook my hand again, harder this time. 
Thank you, sir. That's extremely generous of you. Maybe you can buy a dog, I said. Kayla hugged me. I gave her a quick one-handed pat on the back and wished them both good luck. They walked along the water's edge, and I watched their, their footprints disappear in the wet sand until their bodies had disappeared, too. Out past the breakers, a jellyfish bobbed along with the tide with nothing to do but live forever. Thank you. I have in my notes, hold for applause, which was very optimistic, but <laughs> I'm glad that it turned out okay. You can tell that I have some lovely family members in the audience tonight who are just audibly saying positive things, which I really appreciate. I feel like people should do that more often. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so I'm just gonna talk a little bit about um, the process of writing the book, and then if anyone wants to ask questions, I'll, I'm happy to answer them. Um, the first chapter I just read started out as a short story um, that I wrote maybe, or I started writing maybe six years ago. And the early versions were very, very different from what I just read. Um, you know, there was a teacher going off the rails and some facts about animals that live a really long time, and that was about it. Um, but I really, I really liked the voice, so I worked on that story for about two years and wrote, I think, about 65 versions of it until I got it right, and then I was, or as right as I was going to get it, and then I was really happy when a magazine I like uh, published it. And, um, you know, writing like 60 or 65 or more drafts isn't very unusual for me. Um, I used to think it was because I was a perfectionist, um, which is kind of a funny humble brag. Uh, like, you know me, I'm a perfectionist. Unlike you, you pile of garbage who will turn in anything. <laughs> but I later realized that it wasn't that at all. It was just that my first drafts were uh, really bad. So it just took me a long time to get anywhere good. So it'd be like 20 or 25 drafts before I knew if, you know, if there was anything there. But, um, but yeah, by the time the story was published, I had, uh, I had written like two other stories from the same perspective. And I was starting to think there was something there. I was enjoying being with this character. Uh, and I was thinking about doing a collection of connected stories. Um, but short stories, uh, well, the problem with them is they're so short. Um, this is my major insight of the day. But uh, short stories, because they're short, tend to revolve around epiphanies, these moments of intense realization when you, get, you understand something about life that you didn't previously understand. It's you know a thunderbolt moment of eureka or whatever. And when you have them in stories and they work, they're great. Um, but I started feeling in my own writing like it was a little bit inauthentic of me to be writing so many epiphanies because I don't have very many epiphanies in my life. Um, hopefully I learn things, but it takes a long time. And I take like three steps forward and two steps back and it's a very slow process. And when I have these thunderbolt moments of realization, they're usually wrong. And like, so I'll have this great realization on Tuesday and then by, by Wednesday I'll be like, oh, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. Or, you know, I'll realize something about life that I didn't know before and then three weeks later, it will not have changed the way I live my life at all, because uh, I'm too busy. 
So as a writer, I'm really interested in, um, in what happens after the epiphany. And the chapter I just read ends with, um, I guess it depends on how you read it. I don't know if you call it an epiphany, but it's a moment of introspection, maybe epiphany-ish. Um, but you know, then you turn the page and chapter two starts and life continues. Um, so I wanted to write between these moments and I started writing between the three stories, sort of connecting them, you know, creating backstory and things like that. And then I read a whole new second half um, and then work on, worked on it a long time. And finally, I sent it out to a friend who said, you know, it's good, but it's really claustrophobic. You're really stuck in this person's head. Have you thought about writing it in third person? And I, I kind of prefer writing in first person. I don't really love third person. I mean, I like reading third person. I just don't really like writing in it. But I figured, why not give it a try? So I spent three or four months rewriting it in third person and got it as good as I could get it. And I sent it to another friend. And he was like, this is much better in first person. Why would you do this? <laughs> um, so I went back and read it again. And it was much better in first person. Uh, so I rewrote it in first person but using the things I had learned in the third person. And that's kind of when we started to get somewhere. Um, so yeah, and then the rest of it isn't terribly interesting. I, I, I was lucky enough to find, uh, I sent it out and you know, found an agent, which was, uh, which was really exciting for me. Um, this is the fifth novel I've written, um, but as you might have guessed from the debut title, it was the first that was published. The other four will be published um, upon my death as my revenge on humanity <laughs> for not saving my life. But uh, when I tried to publish the when I tried to get agents for the first four, you know, it was very fruitless. So it was exciting that it happened um, with this one. And then he and I worked on it for six months, and we found a publisher, and it was a very happy day. Um, but as I mentioned earlier. Uh, the book was published in Swedish translation before it came out here, which is a little bit unusual. Um, but what happened is a large part of the second half of the book takes place in Sweden. And I'm born in Sweden. Um, uh, my mom is Swedish. And I speak Swedish. But I grew up in the US. Um, but all those factors made it so that publishing it in Sweden kind of made sense. And given that Sweden's a much smaller country, so their publishing cycle is much shorter. Here, it's usually like 18 to 24 months uh, to get a book published. In Sweden, it's more like six to 12. So the American publisher let them publish it first, which was really cool of them. And they sent it to a translator, uh, which was wild because I speak Swedish, but I can't, I can't write in Swedish like I can write in English. Um, since I was two, for the most part, I've only spoken Swedish with my mom. So I speak Swedish without an accent like a woman born in the 50s, which, <laughs> which is very confusing to Swedish people. Um, um, but so, so the publisher rightly said they wanted to find a translator. So they found this great translator named uh, Molly Kandemert Holander, um, who, uh, who translated the book. And when she sent it to me, it was wild. Because I can't write in Swedish like that. But it sounded to me like I sound. So it was like hearing myself in English in Swedish, and it was kind of like a sliding doors moment where it's like, maybe this is what I would have sounded like if we hadn't moved to the US when I was two. Um, so it was a really cool and very strange experience. Um, and 
the two versions, the English and the Swedish, besides being a different language, are pretty much the same. There's a couple little changes that like, I don't have to explain to a Swedish audience who Slatan Ibrahimovic is. Um, he's a soccer player who is the most famous person in Sweden by like a million percent. Um, and there was a couple little changes that were really fun to make because uh, since the translator and I both spoke the language, we could do a little bit more editing than usually can in a translation. So for example, in the second half of the book, the narrator uh, starts working with refugees and he becomes really wrapped up in it. And, but he doesn't want to sound self-righteous. And he says at one point, I didn't want to sound like a Habitat for Humanity spring breaker just returned from the ninth ward to explain poverty, which is a sentence that in English I kind of like. In Swedish, it makes no sense because you don't know what Habitat for Humanity spring breaker or ninth ward is. So my translator came up with like all these great, very smart ways to get around it. And I was like, well, how about we just delete it? And she was like, that would be much better. So, <laughs> so it was nice to get to do that. Um, and then I got to work with my, uh, uh, my Swedish editor, who was this uh, wonderful person named Anni, who uh, is very delicate with writer's feelings. But in one issue came up that she couldn't let go. Uh, towards the tail end of this eight-hour Skype meeting we were having, because she's in Sweden, I'm in the U.S., just going through it line by line. There's a scene where the narrator is making meatballs, it's a big thing in Sweden, uh, with another character. And she said, did you mean to have him cooking meatballs with cooking oil? <laughs> and, I, and my mom is laughing already. <laughs> she's like, you idiot. <laughs> I, I said, yeah, why? And she said, okay, but you didn't mean to have him cooking with butter. And I said, no. And she said, okay, okay. And this wasn't meant to reflect poorly on his character. <laughs> and, I, and I said, no. And she said, okay, okay. I said, do you think I should change it to butter? She said, I think that would be less distracting for Swedish readers. So that is one major difference. But, it was a really cool process, and it was really fun to get to work with very talented people on both versions, one of whom I was just talking or uh, gushing with Maddie before the reading about this cover that this designer made for me, who I, I've never talked to this person or given him any input. The publisher sent him the book, he read it, and this was the first thing he sent back, and it's just perfect. Uh, and I was so relieved because I heard so many horror stories from friends that I was gearing up for a fight. And then I was just really happy instead. So, so yeah. But I think that that is about as long as you can be reasonably expected to listen to me without break. So um, I'm going to open it up for questions here. So if anyone has a question, please hit me with it. Yes. about humor in relation to Sweden? Oh, well, thank you. So the question was a compliment, which I recommend. Um, no, the question was talking about uh, how I'm constructing jokes and how I'm using humor and a little bit about how that relates to Sweden. Um, 
And I'm trying to think of a good answer. No one's ever asked me that before. I was ready for like the top 10 most asked questions. <laughs> um, but um, as to, in terms of the Swedish part, I'm not like, Swedish people are very funny in a very different way, I think. I am not at all funny in Swedish. It's one of the reasons I have a hard time being there. Um, but I, I don't know, I don't know how much my humor got across in the Swedish version. I'm not sure we're operating on the same wavelengths. Um, I think, I got some really nice reviews over there, but people who say nice things about the book on this side have usually said it's funny, and that was not anything that came up in Sweden. So I'm not sure what role that is or how I construct jokes. I think that I really like reading things that are sad and funny. I like it when things have texture. I think when you have too much of anything, whether it's suffering or jokes, it gets like the reader becomes a little numb to it. So I try to do things that are a little bit funny at least. Um, and I also think that most of the people in my life, when they have pain, they usually try to use humor to work through it and that a natural reaction to tragedy is to laugh. But, you know, to your own tragedy, not other people's tragedy. That's probably less good to laugh at. Um, and then that's, that's one thing that I actually, I gave a lot of thought to, not to ruin anything in the book, but it says it on the jacket, and I've already mentioned it, that the narrator starts working with refugees in the second half of the book. And that is, you know, something that I think it's a lot harder to be funny about and a lot more careful to be funny about, but I still wanted to have some of that narrator's humor because I think it is a big part of him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, unfortunately I didn't, but that's a really good guess. <laughs> uh, no, that's actually uh, the, uh, the immediate repetition is a, is a thing I think is really funny. It never gets old for me. So I'm really glad you thought it was funny too because... Well, good. I'm glad it worked. <laughs> Thank you. Other questions? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So the question was if, uh, if when I was reading the Swedish translation, if it felt more like a Swedish timing or American timing. I guess a combination of both. Um, you know, Swedish pacing is a little bit different. I think um, I think there's there's more room to you're allowed to be intellectual and serious and self-serious in Sweden for better or for worse. Uh, there's a part in the book where uh, the narrator talks about that he goes to a class in Sweden and the professor says we as intellectuals and he doesn't air quote it and it's not like he's not tongue in cheek about it. He's just saying we as intellectuals, which in one way it can be really cool to have the freedom to think of yourself that way. And another way, it, it can also lead to like some insufferable tendencies. Um, I, a friend of mine who's a Swedish poet has described 
Swedish poetry readings as like what a person who'd never gone to a poetry reading would think a poetry reading was. She's like, people are actually smoking cigarettes and turtlenecks. <laughs> um, you know, nothing against turtlenecks. But, um, but yeah, any other questions? Yeah, so the question was uh, if it was hard to uh, get out of the voice of this character in this novel and if there was anything I'm working on now, um, which, uh, yeah, so it was a little hard because, you know, you, you sit with someone for a really long time. Um, my way out of that was I wrote a book of nonfiction, um, which helps. So I'm just fin I just finished, I actually just sent my agent the rough draft of a book um, which is a biography of uh, a really enigmatic, fascinating Swedish writer named Stig Dagerman, who uh, is one of the great 20th century Swedish writers who debuted at 22, published about 10 books before he was 26, then had five years of writer's block and um, killed himself. And, but his life was super interesting and it was a really uh, fascinating, for me, way to look at ethics of literature and sort of questions of like, who gets to tell a story? What, what's the collateral damage? Um, because he wrote very intensely from his own life and that caused some problems, um, uh, but also caused some great literature. So, so it definitely was hard to get out of this voice, but I kind of cheated by switching over to nonfiction. Um, I'll probably start writing fiction again in a couple months, I think, but I think the literature god curses writers who talk about books they haven't written, so that one will remain undiscussed. Any other questions? Oh, sorry. I'm going to head over here, but just because I've already heard your good question, but I'll come back to you. Well, the most rewarding is right now. <laughs> I get to sit in front of a room full of people who have to listen to me talk. It's fantastic. Uh, challenging, I mean, I don't know. I. When I was in Sweden, I went to a talk at a little library where a Swedish writer who I really like gave a really terrible talk uh, where someone asked him about his process and he said, it's just suffering. I get up at eight and I just work and rework and rework and rework and I'm alone and it's never right and you're never satisfied and you're never happy. <laughs> and this woman who had this really country accent that I, doesn't translate to English said, well then why do you do it? <laughs> And I feel like talking about with what's hard with writing, kind of have to preface it with like, this is the thing I want to be doing most in the world and I'm so happy I get to do it. Um, so nothing is that hard in the grand scheme of things. But the grand scheme of things only exists for other people. So, I mean, I think what's hardest is just sitting with something alone for a long time and not knowing if it's good. And, um, you know, this book I sent to my agent, I spent, it was 18 months before anyone read a line of it. You work on it, you know, five, six, seven days a week for 18 months. Some days you're like, well, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. I'm a superstar. And some days you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> and that's hard to not have anyone to talk to about that. It's a perk to get to get this alone time, but that, that's probably the hardest part. Um, um, but, 
you know, it's also it's also nice to get to work alone and get to uh, get to sort of experience that space. I think with this book, another thing that was a little bit challenging mentally was that you know I've been writing not for a super long time, but for ten or twelve years. And during that time, I've been taking part-time work and gigs to make sure I had time to write. And, you know, I was getting a little bit older and a lot of time without car and health insurance and living with my best friend and his wife, which was lovely. But um, it's, it started to get to a point where it was like, well, if when I was writing this book, I felt like it was different, like I was finally doing the thing I wanted, I'd been trying to do. I felt like, well, if this one doesn't get published, I might have to reconsider how much time I'm spending on this. I probably wouldn't have, but it was something I worried about a lot. So that was probably the hardest part. But I mean, the most fun part was just getting to feel good about it. The day it sold was very fun. That was a really exciting day. Um, you know, people said, like, well, it's never going to live up to everything you've hoped for, uh, which was so wrong. It was, like, way better. Um, <laughs> It's like, you know, I was just with my girlfriend and my best friend and his wife, and we were drinking champagne and dancing to disco, and it was fantastic. So those were all fun moments. I don't know how we're doing on time. We can do one more question. You don't have to brag. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes and no. The short answer is that I really like writing about places I've already lived um, because I don't like describing place that much. Um, I, I like it when other writers do it well, but it's just not something that like I excel at or am super interested in. Um, but I think this place start this story starts in North Carolina and moves to Oregon, and then moves to Sweden and Germany a little bit. Um, and the reason it moved to Sweden was, well, it's all plot based, <laughs> so I don't want to give away all the stuff. But but yeah, there was a I definitely had to change the I, I couldn't have it exactly the way where I had lived because um, some things had to happen that hadn't happened in my life. Um, as you might guess from the end of this chapter, uh, this teacher does not keep his job. Um, so there's a move that takes place because of that. And um, it's funny, actually, uh, I used to teach in North Carolina about 10 years ago, but I, I have two students who showed up out of the blue tonight from North Carolina who can attest to the fact that I was a very good teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I never sent them to funerals. Um, but it was really cool of you guys to show up. And it's very nice of all of you to show up. It's, it's lots of people I've never met and then lots of people from different parts of my life. It's, um, it's kind of like, you know, when you get your email hacked and you get to catch up with people from different parts of your life because everyone's writing you emails. They're like, your email got hacked. And you're like, thank you. How are you? Are you still married? Um, it's like that, but like way better. So... Um, Thank you all for coming out tonight. That was wonderful. Thank you, Johannes. Uh, yeah, we're going to set up a... You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. 
Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.